You're listening to audio from The Village Church. This teaching is designed to be listened to after having completed the lesson in the workbook. It is not intended to stand alone. You can download the workbook at tvcresources.net. So to pick up from last week, um, chapters 5 through 7, we see David growing stronger and stronger. Um, While the house of Saul was growing weaker and weaker, we see David show himself to be the anti-Saul. As each time he goes into battle, he asks for the Lord's blessing before he goes. With the story of Michael and the movement of the ark, we learn that God desires to bless and not destroy, but he must be accepted on his terms. He calls us into relationship with him, but he is a consuming fire. And so that we should seek to obey him in all we say and do, our approach to God matters. And then in chapter 7, we see the Davidic covenant. We see God's covenant promises for dwelling dominion and dynasty. The promise that God will be faithful to place a king on the throne, that those who worship this king would have the dwelling place of God in them as a people of God, and that they would rule and subdue their enemies. And so as we enter into chapter 8, the question that we will be asking is that will God keep his promise? That what he's promised to do through the house of David, will God do that? Will we see that come to pass? It reminds me of something that, a relationship. Y'all know I'm single, so I'm going to tell the single illustrations. <laughs> and um, it was when I was in college. And I was young and looking for love, probably in the wrong places. And I was talking to this guy. And he, I went to college for him for a semester. And then he went back. He didn't finish. And so he lived in the city. And so he, when he'd come to visit the college campus, he would always say, hey, I'm going to come by and I'm going to visit you. And so like any good woman, I would cook him food and I would get myself ready because the way to a man's heart is through his stomach because that's obviously worked for me. And um, I would wait and I would wait and I would wait and I would wait and he wouldn't come. And I wish I could say that I didn't do this more than once, but I did. I mean, we, we do it all the time. Um, but I distinctly remember the deep levels of disappointment of longing for this promise that he had given me to be fulfilled and for him not fulfilling it. There are many times that we feel disappointed by the Lord because we feel as if the things that he's promised us that he hasn't brought into fulfillment. And so as I've walked through this in my own life, uh, Matthew chapter 11 has been super powerful for me. You have the story of John the Baptist and he's reaching out to Jesus because he's seeing Jesus do all these things but he's in prison. He's like, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, why aren't you getting me out of prison? And what Jesus points him to is the promises of the Old Testament. That he says, I am who they said I would be, and I'm doing what they said I would do. What Jesus is telling John is that he wants him to remember that his God is a promise-keeping God. That's what we're going to learn in the text today. Despite how we might feel, despite the things that we go through in our life with the Lord, we need to remember that our God is a promise-keeping God. So as we talk about David's conquests and his efforts to express kindness to Jonathan's house and his allies, this is what the author wants us to remember. It is a theme that we see very clearly through this week's text, a super powerful theme, that God's faithful. He's faithful. 
So as we jump into chapter 8, we have a little bit of context for where we're going this week. We're going to see a shift in David's activity. He is going to move from engaging in defensive battles to mounting a series of offensive battles on each side of Israel with the goal of expanding his territory and building an empire. His conquest will bring rest to Israel on every side, as God has promised in chapter 7. And so I want you to flip to the back of your books to the map, because I want us to show what's happening. The author has arranged the text this week in such a way that it's not chronological. Um, The way that he's arranged it is geographical because he wants us to see how David secures each side of the border of Israel. So as we walk through the text, we're going to see that he is going to subdue the Philistines on the southwest side. You're going to see him subdue the Moabites on the southeast We get to verses three through eight. We're going to see the Aramaeans on the northern side. So that leaves the west and the east. The west is the Mediterranean Sea. And so we have the Ammonites on the east, and David is going to deal with them in chapter 10. The author has constructed this story in such a way to show us how David is getting rest for Israel on all sides as a fulfillment of the promise that God has made. Our God is a promise-keeping God. So let's jump in at verse 1, chapter 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze." All right, verse one, immediately we have a trigger for the Davidic covenant. Like immediately we have a trigger after this, after all the promises that God has made, we see what David does. Um, David defeats the Philistines and subdue, subdue them. Um, for this word subdue is the only other time this word is used is in 1 Samuel 7, 11, um, where the Philistines come back against Israel after they return the ark that Israel had gone to war against the Philistines and they had this really great idea after the first time they lost. Let's just bring the ark with us. We're not going to ask God about it. We're just going to bring the ark. And that's how they lost it. And so it's been returned. And then the Philistines rise up again against Israel. And Samuel goes to the Lord on behalf of Israel. And the text reads that... um, the text reads that the Philistines were subdued, that they were held back against Israel for as long as Samuel was over Israel as judge. 
Um, And so we have the same language being used um, in this verse that is pointing towards Samuel. Um, And so the magnitude of what David was able to accomplish against the Philistines. Then we get to verse 2. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line and making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. Um, It's not long before we get into the text that we see some pretty harsh behavior. Um, David killed two-thirds of the Moabite soldiers and left one-third. That he needs to render his enemy inoperable against Israel. Um, Then you see the Moabites become part of David's kingdom and to pay tribute to them. It's this idea that they were to be in submission to David, that you see him expanding his empire. And so for them to pay part of what they have is that um, a part of what you have belongs to me as evidence of your submission to me, um, as evidence of their submission to David. And so even though we see this really harsh treatment of the kingdom of Moab, um, it wouldn't have been anything that was unusual for the day and time of David. Again, David is expanding his territory, and he needs to make sure that his enemy is inoperable against Israel. So the battle goes up north. Um, In verse 4, we see that David took. And so again, every time we hear that language, we need to be reminded of Samuel's speech of what a king is going to do as he expands his territory. Zobal was a part of Aramean territory, and the Syrians were a part of that as well. Um, And so you see them go up north um, to be able to conquer that territory. And so that Hadadezar, he was going to restore his power at the river of Euphrates. And so at that time that he comes into contact with David, and David takes from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. And he hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots again. We see David's behavior, he's making his enemy inoperable because his goal is to bring rest to Israel, rest from all their enemies. And so the Syrians of Damascus came in to help. And so David does what he always does. He whoops them, right? 22,000 men of the Syrians struck down. Um, Then David put garrisons in Aram and the Syrians become servants and they pay tribute as well. We see David expanding his territory, but the author puts in this detail for us. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And so what we need to know is that David's not doing this on his own power. That this is a fulfillment of the promise that the Lord has given to David. That he would make his name great. We're going to see that. That he is going to expand his territory and he's going to give rest to Israel from all their enemies. It confirms God's involvement in David's conquests. And then we see David take the spoils of war. We're going to see how David interacts with these spoils of war in a much different way than Saul did. When it says, Batah was on the northern part of Zobah, and Barothai was on the south. And so that phrase literally means that the author is trying to communicate that he took from one end to the other the massiveness of what David has done and what he's been able to gain from his conquests. And he's going to hold that. Um, and he's going to end up dedicating that to the Lord along of the other spoils of war that he's gained from his battles. Let's pick up at verse 9. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask him about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. 
For Hadadezer had, been, had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Eden, Moab, Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, King Azobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. In your homework, you had to, you were asked to decide whether or not Toy was really concerned about David's health. I don't think he was. He was more concerned about his safety (laughs) because what he had seen is David conquer his neighbors. And so in some sense, he's trying to get to David before David gets to him. And the seriousness of his desire to be at peace with David is seen by the fact that he sends his own son to talk to David. With this, we see that for the first time, Israel is occupying the land that God had promised in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. We see on all these sides, as we saw on the map, that David is being able, that David is able to ensure peace for the nation. Verse 11, we see what David does with the spoils of war. Saul had a much different decision that he kept some back for himself. Um, still remember how Samuel said, I can hear the sound of the sheep. And Saul is trying to wiggle his way out of an explanation. It was the people. It was the people. It was their decision. But we see David step out in leadership to dedicate the spoils of war to the Lord. That goes in line with what we see, what was a law for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17.17 that he will use this to show that it is the power of the Lord and not his own power that is being able to expand the territory. Already, as we see the comparison between Saul's kingdom and David's kingdom, we see David give honor where honor is due um, in the way that Saul did not. Then we see David secure the southern border by defeating Edom, striking down 18,000 in the Valley of Salt. Um, There again, he puts garrisons, ensuring that the people that he's conquered are able to operate in a space where they honor the king and honor the kingdom. Um, So again, we see David and his power and his influence is spreading as it grows across the nation. Um, And once again, the author repeats, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. It is the power of the Lord It is our promise-keeping God is the one that is pushing forth David to win all these conquests to secure the borders of Israel so that the people may be at rest. Verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of of Ahilud was recorder, and Zadok the son of Ahitub and Ahimelech the son of Abiathar were priest, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah the son of Jeho- 
all these names. <laughs> Jehoiada was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. The chapter ends talking about David's reign. He rules with justice and equity, and in doing so reflects the character of God. David is pictured as having taken over the role of judge that had belonged to Samuel, the last in a long line that began with Joshua. Thus early in his rule, David was remembered as taking an active and caring role in the day-to-day affairs of his kingdom and his people. This contrasts with the kingdom, the way that Saul reigned. We see even as after the Lord took the kingdom from Saul, that he spent the rest of his days trying to hold on, that his interests were in himself and not the best interests of his people, we see something different with David. Justice and righteousness. You all took a look at Psalm 72 in your homework this week. A psalm that points us to Jesus, the king who will rule forever. Talking about advocating for the weak, the needy, and the oppressed, that is the spirit in which David ruled, that he loved his people and sought their best interests. And it points us again to the king who will do that, who will see when he comes to dwell with humanity, that he advocates for the weak, he advocates for the needy, he advocates for those who do not have a voice. Justice and righteousness is a character of our God. And that is the way we see David reign over his own people. However, we're going to be a witness of David's own humanity. As we jump into the text next week, we're going to see that his demise comes when he deserts the cause of justice for his own selfish goals. That what is important is that we image our creator. And when that stops happening, we step in a tricky area. And that's what we're going to see next week. So the passage ends by talking about the different leaders that David appointed to help him rule his nation. The leaders that oversaw the military, administrative, and ecclesiastical aspects of his government. He was needing good leadership to run his kingdom. It talks about David made a name for himself. And again, we know that that was not by David's power, but by the Lord's power, a fulfillment of the promises that had been made in chapter 7. Some of the promises were yet to be fulfilled. And we will see our God do that throughout history, the already and not yet. That even though they have not been fulfilled in this time, according to where David is right now, um, we will see those come to pass, trusting in the faithfulness of our God. Remember our God is a promise-keeping God. Through his conquest, David secures rest for Israel from their enemies and expands his kingdom. He makes a great name for himself, ruling over his nation with justice and righteousness. But all of this is brought about not by the power of David, but by the power of God. God's promises are completed because he and he alone ensures their fulfillment. Remember, our God is a promise-keeping God. Chapter 9. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. 
And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to God, kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Masir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then king of David sent and brought him from the house of Masir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son, and Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The theme we see in this chapter is loyalty. In the context of what God, David is going to repeat the same phrase three times. Who can I show kindness to? This Hebrew word for kindness is hesed. H-E-S-E-D. Hesed. I'm going to read this for you guys. The word hesed has a rich history in Hebrew and defines translation into easy English equivalents, which means that it's not easily easily translated into our language. Its basic connotation has to do with covenant loyalty, but it could also refer to the loving kindness that results from loyal relationships. Hesed is said to be a constant characteristic of Yahweh's relationship with Israel. When Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 33, he received both a quick view of the divine afterglow as Yahweh passed by and the memory of God's self-revelation. And this is what Moses writes in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping hesed, steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This text reveals Yahweh's nature as being one of mercy and grace, but one that is also bound by covenant love. Sometimes covenant commitments are expressed through steadfast love. At other times, covenant commitments require that persons experience consequences they have brought upon themselves and their descendants. The image of Yahweh as God, as Hesed, has become a signature, signature description of who he is. And so when we see this covenant loyalty that David is displaying both 
to Jonathan's son and what we will see him display to Nahash's son in chapter 10 is a reflection of the steadfast love that God has for his creation. This commitment, this covenant loyalty. So the depth and commitment that David has to the covenant that he made with Jonathan images this covenant loyalty that God has with his chosen people, Israel, and to the death and burial resurrection of Jesus Christ that God has with us. And so when David says in verse one of chapter nine, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He is pointing back to the covenant that he made with Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 20, 12 through 17. And I want to read 14 through 17 for us. And at this point in the text, Jonathan is speaking. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off everyone from the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. The depth of relationship and connection that Jonathan and David had. And at this point in the text in 1 Samuel, the tables have been turned. David is the one in need. And Jonathan is the one that has the power to show kindness. Well, now in 2 Samuel, the tables have turned. And it is David who has the power to show kindness in a situation in which he doesn't have to. David looks for someone to show kindness to and asks that there is someone out of Jonathan's house that he might do such. And so they find one of Saul's old servants, Ziba, and he tells him that Jonathan still has a son that's alive, Mephibosheth. It's a name that we've heard before in 2 Samuel 4.4. The author takes a pause in the narrative at that point in time to tell us about Jonathan's son and how when Jonathan and Saul died, the boy's nurse ran and fled. She fled because at that time it was customary for an incoming king to get rid of the family of the king that had come before him. So she was trying to protect Mephibosheth's life. But she dropped him and he became lame. And we're going to see this pop up in verse 13. You guys were asked to answer a question on it. But this is important for the context of the text. And so in verse 6, Mephibosheth comes to meet David, and he fell on his face and paid homage. Can you imagine what he's thinking? His father's dead. His grandfather's dead. His uncle is dead. That he has nothing. He's not on his father's land. That David, and it was customary in ancient Near Eastern culture, might kill him. And he has been asked to come into David's presence and he falls flat on his face. And so what does David say in response to him? Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. He reassures him. You notice through this text that as we are talking about Jonathan's son, his name isn't mentioned until halfway through the passage. And in some sense, it talks about how insignificant that he might have felt, that his family's not in power anymore, and he's at the mercy of David. And David decides to show him grace and mercy. 
David restores his father's land and gives him a permanent seat at the table. He restores him to a princely status and in some sense makes him a member of David's royal household. You know the intimacy that being at someone's table communicates? This idea that, hey, you will get, you'll get, go out and get drinks with some friends, but you only, with some acquaintances, but you only invite your friends and your family members to your table. If the conversations they would have had there, the things that Mephibosheth would have known about David's kingdom, to be able to be invited to be a part of the family, the intimacy. He said, I'm not just going to bless you. I'm going to invite you in, into the inner circle. That's what David offers him when he doesn't have to. The grace and mercy that David shows Mephibosheth based upon the covenant relationship that he had with his father and the love that that expresses. And remember of what David is doing just points to what God has done for us in a greater way. Mephibosheth's response emphasizes his surprise and gratitude. Who am I that you would show kindness to me? The Israelites regarded dogs as pests rather than pets. So to speak of oneself as a dog is to acknowledge insignificance. A dead dog would be even more so. But he realized that in some sense he felt like he was a nobody. And the king is showing him grace and kindness and inviting him to his table. We see Ziba has been ordered to care for Mephibosheth's estate. Um, That he might have been a free man because he had his own servants. But because of David's command, he and his household were obligated to now care for Mephibosheth in the land that David had given him. We see a mention of a Mephibosheth's son. I should get a dollar for every time I pronounce that name. (laughs) Emphasizing the care that Jonathan's household will have under the reign of David. But in verse 13, the author leaves us a specific detail. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This points us back to last week, specifically to 2 Samuel 5, verse 6, where the Jebusites were in Jerusalem. And so David was looking to be able to conquer that city and to take hold of Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites taunted David, saying that the lame and blind would ward them off, pointing to how easily defendable their city was and how weak David was. And so David and the Jebusites have an exchange, and it, from that comes this phrase, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And so Jen told us that that was linked to the Jews, not allowing the lame and the blind into the sanctuary. Well, now we have Mephibosheth, who is lame, who is not only in Jerusalem, but he is sitting at the table of the king. It points us to Jesus who when he came stepped into the temple and healed the lame and the blind, both physically and spiritually. The outcasts of society that we see our God make room for. Those who had been cast aside by society, Jesus in his hesed 
steadfast love invites in to be a part of his family, to sit at his proverbial table and to commune with him. We have been invited in. Invited into the inner circle. That Jesus in his grace and mercy reached out to those who did not deserve. That's you and I. And to be able to commune with him again, to sit at the table, to talk about intimacy. Our God created us to be in community with him. That he desires to dwell with us. And through Jesus, we get that. That the beauty of what David has done should point our eyes up to God who has operated in even more greater covenant love, steadfast love for you and I, that we're invited to be a part of his family, to be in communion with him, to sit at his table. Remember our God is a promise-keeping God. David is a man of loyalty. He honors a covenant he made with Jonathan by showing kindness to his son. In a day and time where it was culturally acceptable for David to wipe out the family of the king that had come before him, David chooses, chooses to be the exception by showing kindness to a man who could do nothing for him in return. Yet David's behavior is rooted in the character of God. The God of Israel had promised to show steadfast love to his chosen people, for in the same way that David blesses Mephibosheth, God was committed to blessing Chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half their beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Chapter 9 is a story of David's loyalty being graciously received. We will see in chapter 10 that David will offer the same kind of loyalty and he will receive a different response. The text tells us that David had a relationship with Nahash, an, an ally sort of relationship. This idea that when David was the enemy of Saul, it is naturally understandable that an enemy of Saul would be a natural supporter of David. So we don't understand when it happened, but somehow um, David and Nahash had an amicable relationship. And this is a Nahash from 1 Samuel 11, the one who wanted to gouge out the eyes of the Israelites. So David desires to show hesed or steadfast love to Hanan because of the relationship that he had with his father. But his advisors are suspicious. And it's understandable since David has been conquering everybody around them that they might believe that David doesn't have their best interests in mind. And so what did they do when David's men come to offer comfort for Hanan's loss of his father? 
They cut off half their beard and cut off their garments in the middle. The beard was a symbol of masculinity, right? And so when he cut off half the garments, all the stuff was showing. <laughs> I'm just going to say it like that. <laughs> Y'all are smart women. Um, <laughs> and so it was to cause shame and public degradation. Something that we might not pick up on in our culture, the American culture, is the idea of honor and shame. And so it's where one's social standing is conferred by the group so that to shame these men was to communicate shame upon Israel and David. It was a significant offense. So much so that David tells these men to stay where they're at till their beards grow and then they can come back. And I don't know about y'all, my hair grows fast, but not that fast. <laughs> so they probably stayed there for quite some time. The Ammonites had to know that David would follow up on this. And so in some sense, for them, pushing this offense against David and his people is a declaration of open war. Verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians, Zobah and Rahab, and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what, seems, do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And had a dazer sent and brought out the Syrians who were, with be, who were beyond the Euphrates. And they came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer at their head. And when it was told to David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed the Syrians and the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. David sends Joab into battle. And Joab's plan is to divide and conquer. And tells his brother, you take half and I'll take half. And if you're in need, I'm going to come help you. And if I'm in need, you can come help me. 
And what we see is the response of the Syrians and the Ammonites is that they flee. The word fled is used four times in this narrative. The author is emphasizing the magnitude of Israel's victory. We're not talking about a couple hundred men fleeing, thousands. Imagine the power and strength that was being exhibited by Israel at this point in time. But the Syrians, so the Ammonites get the picture and they get the message, but the Syrians want to come back for more. And so they mount up again. And when David hears about it, and I'm a movie person, I like action movies. And so I just wonder what this scene would have been like when they tell David what's happening. He like gets up and he gets the whole nation and they come out together against the Syrians. David killed 700, David killed the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen. This is to sit with you. The amount of men that were on the field for David to have killed 40,000 men. That what is being communicated through David's conquest, with all the numbers that we're seeing throughout this text, is the power and strength of David that is building as he is expanding his empire and gaining rest for his nation on all sides. Verse 19 teaches us that Israel is strong. And that David is revered for the strength and power of his kingdom. The Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. David has secured rest for his nation on all sides. Remember our God is a promise-keeping God. Once again, David sought to exercise loyalty, but his loyalty was rejected and he re- responds to this rejection with force. Because even though steadfast love means kindness, it is not necessarily soft. In his sovereignty, we see God use the situation to fulfill his promise to expand the territory that he had promised to his chosen people. David is committed to reflecting God's just and faithful character in his reign. A commitment we see God bless by bringing his covenantal promises to fulfillment. Our God is a promise-keeping God. Yesterday, I got a text message from an old friend of mine um, that him and his wife have had issues with infertility for a really long time. And so last, it was a couple of years ago that they decided they wanted to go towards adoption um, and were really close to adopting a child and then it all fell through. And it was a really painful time to walk with them through. They love the Lord and understand that sometimes we don't understand what he does. But to see them hope for something and hope for God to come through, man, in that moment, not being able to see the fullness of what God has for their life, feel disappointed. Yesterday, he sent me a picture of a beautiful baby boy. They were able to adopt. Our God is faithful. He is a promise-keeping God. That to walk with my friends and believing that God somehow was going to see them and meet them in their time of need. And that he did that in a really beautiful way. And that's not how our stories always turn out. But man, it points to the character of the God that they serve. 
It is so easy for us to be disappointed because we see what's limited. We see one piece of the mosaic while God sees the whole picture and he understands how it fits together. What this week's text points us to is the unrelenting desire of God to fulfill what he has promised us. And what we know that amidst all things that God is redeeming humanity and restoring creation. He is restoring the image that was broken in the garden. And so all the brokenness and pain that we might experience in life, our God is with us in that because he's going to do what he said he was going to do. Amen. He's a promise-keeping God. And so I want to encourage you that when you feel like he's disappointed you to remember what you saw this week in the text, to remember the conquests of David and how he pushed forth and expanded his territory by the power of the God who had promised that to him. I want you to remember the steadfast love that David showed Mephibosheth that points us to the steadfast love that God showed us the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want you to remember the covenant promises that we see fulfilled through David. Even as the Ammonites reject his loyalty, that all of that situation worked to fulfill God's promise to expand David's territory. Even when we don't understand and we can't see that what we can trust in is that what God has promised us he will bring forth to fulfillment because that's just who he is. So I want to end us where we started with the lyrics from one of the songs we sung this morning. Promise maker, promise keeper, you finish what you begin. Our provision through the desert, you see it through till the end. Remember our God is a promise-keeping God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are and that you've invited us to your table that we might sup with you and experience community with you. Lord, gird us up in the truth of who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us through your scriptures and the person and work of Jesus Christ and that we can look to those to know your character, even when it might be hard to understand what's going on. Let us trust that you're faithful and that you are going to bring fulfillment to the promises that you have given to us. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.